This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 16. We'll be looking at the final section of this chapter, beginning at verse 19 and taking it through to verse 31. It is a very familiar story. When I merely say the phrase, the rich man and Lazarus, you already know the story. You know what it's about. Don't let that keep you from paying close attention to God's word. For there is a richness to God's word that teaches us, even when we think, we know everything that there is to know. And if you now give attention to the reading of God's holy word, the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. If we stop and give some consideration we will understand that it is hard to think about hell. It's hard to think about hell and eternal punishment, isn't it? It's certainly very difficult for those who know nothing of Christ. They give it no thought and don't want to think about anything that could be sad or difficult or painful. But even for those who have given their life to Christ who trust Jesus alone by His work 
to free them from the wrath of God and save them from hell, we still don't like to think about it much, do we? For we always have friends or or loved ones who don't claim Christ and we wonder what will become of them and we, we don't want to give much thought to hell. We'd much rather think about heaven, wouldn't we? And think about the glories of heaven and the blessings of heaven and all of the good things that will come in heaven. There's only one problem with that way of thinking, and that is that Jesus spoke an awful lot about hell. And this morning especially, he is teaching us about hell. Now, this passage of the rich man and Lazarus does not drop sealed from heaven. It comes in the midst of this chapter that we have been studying in Luke chapter 16. It comes in the context of what Jesus has been teaching. This is not just a familiar Bible story that comes in a vacuum. Jesus is continuing to press his point home about how we cannot serve two masters. The center of this chapter is verse 13. How we must either serve one or the other. Or how we must love one and hate the other. And Jesus tells us pointedly, you cannot serve God and money. This is a story to describe for us about the importance of faith and trust in Jesus. It's a story of two men, very different men, who bring to us the context in which Jesus gives us a warning about the finality of judgment. The judgment is final and eternal. And then finally, a warning that Jesus brings about the imperative of faith, about the necessity of faith and believing God. A story of two men that Jesus uses to bring warnings. Well, again, this chapter finds its main focal point in verse 13. Jesus has given us examples because he's teaching his disciples and he's also teaching the Pharisees as well there that we are not to use or excuse me that we are to use money and things not to be used by them verse 9 is very clear of chapter 16 that we are not to see things wealth riches as an end in themselves to be pursued but rather that they are a means to an end Now, the Pharisees rejected that teaching, you recall. In verse 14, they laughed at Jesus. They thought he was a fool for saying something like that. Because, you see, to them, a sign of God's blessing was how much stuff you had. How could Jesus not understand this? And if we're honest with ourselves, we can tend also to this kind of viewpoint. We think about America as a nation that is blessed by God because why? Well, we're wealthy. We have innumerable resources. The world envies us for our riches and power. And we think it is a sign of special blessing. And that could be in our homes as well. Unless we are careful, we can adopt the Pharisees' view of things. So Jesus tells this story to all who are listening, including you and me here this morning. 
It is a contrast between two men. Now, the one is the ultimate have. But the other is the ultimate have not. The contrast between these two men could not be greater. It even comes down into the smallest of levels. One has no name. One is named. One speaks often. The other never speaks. Their circumstances are wildly different. And Jesus is painting us a picture so that we might understand how to follow after him. The first man that we see is the rich man. He is not named. In some books or commentaries, he is called dives, which is simply the Latin word for rich man. They didn't know what to do with him. He doesn't have a name. I guess we have to make one up for him so we know who to refer to. Jesus begins this parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The first thing we have to see is that his being called rich is descriptive. It's not a judgment in and of itself. You see, we are tempted to make the status of a person, especially in a parable like this, the lesson. Don't be like the rich man. It's bad to be rich. Rich people are bad. But that's not what Jesus begins with. There are plenty of people in the Bible who are rich, who are great men of faith. Abraham. David. So we can't look at this and make his wealth the lesson. But the other thing we have to be careful of on the other side is we can't excuse him because he's wealthy. Because, you see, sometimes we're uncomfortable because we realize that most of the world lives in a hut without any air conditioning or heat, and we have a large home with nice furniture and multiple cars, and we like to think we're good people, so rich people can be good too, can't they? Don't fall into that trap either. Jesus is going to tell us about this man and about his heart, and that's where we want to focus. His wealth is a a venue, an opportunity to see his heart. Now, the attitude of this rich man is seen in the further description. It starts out with his clothing. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, this doesn't necessarily seem like much at first glance. Many of us own purple clothing. A few of us who like a certain football team have too much purple clothing. But that's because in our day and age, it's easy to buy something that's purple or red, or blue, or yellow. It doesn't matter because they're all chemicals mixed up to make a dye to put on the shirt. But in Jesus' day, they didn't have chemical factories. They didn't have artificial coloring. They had to naturally get the color for clothing. And purple was especially difficult. The only way to get a dye made from purple was to take the dye from a rare and exceedingly expensive sea mussel. Now picture this. When your source for dye is rare and small, using that dye is going to be very expensive. It's not like purple comes from a cow or a horse. 
It comes from a very small animal. And that's why purple is associated with kings and with royalty. Because usually you had to be a king to afford the dye to put it on the clothing. So this man is not only unbelievably wealthy, he wants you to know about it. But it's not just on the outside. He also has fine linen. Now, what you have to understand is fine linen was also incredibly expensive and had to be imported from Egypt. So not only is his clothing expensive, we might put it this way. His underwear is worth more than you are. He's loaded. And he enjoys it. He walks around in his fine clothing and he feasts every single day sumptuously, Jesus tells us. Now, The words here are very instructive. This is about more than just what he eats, although he eats the best. Prime rib is an off day when he decides he doesn't want filet mignon. But the word here for feasting has a connotation of celebrating, of being joyous. Literally, every day is a party for this guy. He doesn't have to work. He's enjoying life. And he feasts sumptuously. Now, if you look at that and scratch your head, let me help you. It's a little bit of an odd word, isn't it? It's hard to even say. But what the word behind this is, is that there is a sense of ostentation, of showing off about what he eats. So he not only shows off his clothes, he shows off his food. This is the kind of person that you go out to dinner with and they insist on ordering in a foreign language because they can. And so this man is showing off, not just on special occasions, literally every day is an anniversary party for this man. He is living it up. He has the same attitude toward money that the Pharisees do. He is a lover of money and he uses it to gain and gratify his pleasures. That's who this rich man is. Now stop and think for a moment. Before you're ready to get all self-righteous and say that this man needs a beatdown, think about your life. The youngest of us. Think about toys that you just have to have. No matter what. You've got to show your friends that you've got the latest and greatest. Think about as you get a little bit older how you've got to have a car. You've got to have use of a car and then you've got to have your own car. As you grow still older, how you've got to have that vacation. You've got to have that perfect house. Then you've got to have that perfect furniture in that house. You see, it's very easy for us to fall into this same trap. That's why Jesus is teaching us. Then there's another man. He's a poor man. His name is Lazarus. And he has a more difficult life. Now, here's a very interesting thing. Do you know what the name Lazarus means? The name Lazarus means God has helped. Now you look at Lazarus and you say, somebody switched him at birth. Because if there is anybody that God hasn't helped, it's Lazarus, isn't it? He's the definition of what it means not to be blessed. Think about who he is. There couldn't be a greater contrast between Lazarus and the rich man. Now, I want you to note something. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Lazarus 
is the only person in any parable that is called by name. Everyone else is a rich man or a sower or a woman. He's Lazarus. He has a name. And his outward circumstances show that his name doesn't seem to fit. How has God helped him? He's got no ability. He can't work. He can't even help himself. I mean, how does he get where he is? Do you see this? In verse 20, he was laid at the gate. Someone had to carry him and drop him in a spot so he could beg. He couldn't even make it to the spot to beg. And he's laid at this gate of the rich man. This also shows up the contrast between Lazarus and the rich man. Because you don't want to picture like a storm door. Don't even picture the kind of gates that we have in some of our communities where you have to push in the buttons and the security gate swings open. This word for gate is the word you would use to describe the entrance to a palace. So you can understand why Lazarus would want to be there. He thinks this is a place where a man who has more means than anyone else can help me. And Lazarus needs help. He's miserable. He's sick. He has pain. He has sores. He has ulcers that are open. You can imagine the pain and the discomfort of this. If you've ever had a wound that you had to keep changing the dressings on, you know how unseemly and how uncomfortable that is. And then, to make matters worse, the dogs come and lick his sores. Now, stop for a minute. Because what you have in your mind is Lassie or a beagle or your friendly dog coming up and licking Lazarus, the way some of us might like to have our dog lick our face or our hand. That's not what is going on here. This is not Lassie. These are wild dogs. There's a specific word for wild dogs. Wild dogs are something in this time between a cross of a coyote or a wolf and a rat. They go throughout the town scavenging, eating up things. This is not comfort. This is humiliation. He can't get away from the dogs and he has the discomfort and the complete and other humiliation of them coming and licking him and making him unclean. So not only is he poor, not only is he hungry, not only is he hurt, he's ceremonially unclean and no one wants to be around him. And there's absolutely nothing that he could do about any of this. That's who he is. And this shows us a little bit more about the heart of the rich man, right? Because day after day, the rich man goes in and out of his house. He sees Lazarus there every single day. Every day he's confronted with this need. He knows Lazarus is not faking it. He can see the sores. He can see that he can't move. He can see, you can imagine, the ribs sticking out from his chest as he's emaciated with hunger. It shows us the rich man is not just about money, but he has a money-loving heart. That's the point Jesus is making. 
And then there is a reminder that Jesus gives to us. It's brief, but don't miss it, of the great equalizer. He says in verse 22, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And then following on, he says, The rich man also died and was buried. Death comes to both of them as a matter of fact. This is something, the sooner we understand that it's real, the better. Death doesn't play favorites. You may be able, through wealth or means, to stave off death through medicine, through drugs, through other means that you could procure, but inevitably you cannot defeat death. Death comes to everyone. There's no escape, old or young. There is absolutely no escape. And when death comes to the poor man, he can't even be buried. He doesn't even have someone to bury him. But we do see that he's blessed. Because in his death, the angels come and they carry him to Abraham's side. Think of the great blessing that is to be escorted by angels and to be brought right to the side of Father Abraham. The rich man fared a bit better in death. He was actually able to be buried. And you can imagine what a funeral that would be. If he ate like every day was an anniversary, could you imagine the funeral celebration meal that they would put on? And of course they would celebrate. Because the rich man was the kind of man who went to church. The rich man was the kind of man that knew his Bible. The rich man was the kind of man whose theology said... I'm blessed by God, because look at all that I have. And when he died, that's how his friends would measure things up. And what Jesus is doing here is, he's giving his friends, and he's giving you and me a warning, that we dare not trust our hearts or the hearts of others to what is external. Jesus gives first a warning about the finality of judgment. You see, Jesus is making a point Because the prevailing assumption is that God's blessing was tied to material blessing. And if we're honest, we see this today, don't we? All you have to do is turn on Christian radio or the Christian TV and you will say that people will be able to know if you are faithful, if you love God, if God loves you, by how many cars are in your driveway. And by whether you're disabled or not. Whether you're healthy. This is just the Pharisees' theology brought into our world. And if we're really honest, we're tempted to do the same thing, aren't we? We think that we're blessed by who we are and what we have. And we tend to be discouraged if things go downhill. We think somehow if we lose a job, God hates us. And we question our own standing before Him. And so we try to make ourselves better over and over again. And we... Use this as an excuse not to help the poor and the helpless. We say, well, they deserve it. Obviously, they don't believe in God, because if they did, they would make something of themselves. But the rich man was not irreligious. Do you see what happens here? He's in Hades, and he's in anguish. And he cries out, Father Abraham. Now notice, he knows who Abraham is. And he calls out to him expecting to be heard. And he calls out to Abraham saying, 
You know, we're on the same team. We're a part of the same family. You're Father Abraham. I'm your son. We're together. You owe me. I shouldn't be in this spot. You see, this is what should startle us about this parable. Is that the rich man is not someone that we would think, obviously, is deserving of hell. We might look at him and say, he's a good member of his church. He taught Sunday school. He gives to charity. But you see, we can't look there. We have to look to the heart. And where he is is in a place of greatest torment. This is why we don't want to think about hell. You see, he's in great torment. He wants even the smallest relief that he could possibly get. Look at what he asks for. He says, send Lazarus to dip his finger, the tip of it, into water and cool my tongue. Now, this seems like a very reasonable request, right? If we were there, we would say, you know, Abraham, that, go ahead, do that. It's not like the guy's asking to be saved. It's not like he's asking for a pitcher of water. The least you could do is that. Why is he thirsty? Well, obviously we think of hell and hellfire, but there's another analogy here in the scripture. To thirst means to be separated from God, doesn't it? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the psalmist says in Psalm 42. And this man is separated from God. He is in punishment and he is in great anguish. Anguish that is physical, that is mental. He is anxious. He is worried. Every part of his being is in torment. That is what hell is. Let that sink in. Now, we have to understand that hell is far worse than we think it would be. Because not only is hell this bad, it's eternal. Do you understand what that means? I have been going to physical therapy the past few weeks for follow-up on my shoulder, and we've gone to the next level. And so I go to see my therapist, who I think could apply and get a job at Gitmo, as he takes my arm and pushes it to places that I don't want it to go and that are extremely painful. When he does that, I know he's only doing it for 30 seconds. I know he's only doing it for two rounds of four positions. And as he's finishing, he counts down from five to let me know it's almost over. And it's still virtually unbearable. I wonder if everyone would make fun of me if in the middle of it I said, you've got to stop now. That's knowing when it's over. Hell is not like that. Hell is you being done, but not being done. Hell is you think it needs to be over, and it's never over. A famous Puritan put it this way, that if there were a beach filled with billions of grains of sand and a bird came once a year and plucked one grain of sand off the beach and carried it away, eventually the beach would be gone. But not so hell. There is no end ever. Ever. 
This is the torment. This is what the rich man is experiencing. And that makes it all the more startling that when Abraham looks at him, he gives an answer and he says, no, you can't have a cool tongue. Now, why is this? It's not that Abraham is unaware of the rich man's plight. He says to him, child, my son. He knows who he is. No, you see, it's about the rich man's heart. Remember I told you that this is the only parable where someone is named? Now you see why. What does the rich man say? Send Lazarus to cool my tongue. That tells us two things in the depth of his heart. The first thing is that rich man knew exactly who Lazarus was every single time he walked by him. He wasn't just a no one. He knew his name. That gives us a picture of his callous heart, doesn't it? And then think about this. The rich man is in hell. And he still thinks he can order Lazarus around. Come on, Lazarus. Bring me some water. Worse yet, Abraham, you tell Lazarus to come bring me some water. You see, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's about the man's heart is why he's in hell. It's not the fact that he had money. It's not even the fact that he wasn't charitable at times. It is about the fact that his heart was so set on himself that he was always far from God. Why is it that Abraham says no? Why is he so harsh? Well, he tells him, you know, my son... Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now, the Bible is full of important words. Do you notice the difference between the two? The rich man received his good things. Lazarus just received bad things. They weren't his bad things. You see, when... Abraham says to the rich man, you received your good things. What he is saying is, you got exactly what you wanted. You lived your entire life wanting to act as if God did not exist. You wanted to forget everything about God. You wanted what you wanted. You didn't want grace. You didn't want to hear about forgiveness. You didn't want God. You wanted to serve money. You wanted these things and you got them. You should not be surprised. That's what your heart dwelled on. Whereas Lazarus just received bad things. They were just things that came to him in providence. He didn't get what was his heart's desire. His heart's desire was set on the Lord. There is no way that someone can say, my name is God helps me in that situation except for by faith. For some of you here this morning, that's how you live every day. Because God helps you, but you're still racked with pain. You still have debilitating diseases. You still have children who are a challenge. You still have work that you can't handle. You still have things about you that you wish would be fixed by God. 
Those are bad things. But they're not your bad things. Don't set your heart on them. Trust the Lord who will help. You may have to wait. But look at Lazarus. You see, there is a reality to the hell. Abraham says, there is a great chasm that is fixed between you and me. And even if we wanted to help you, we can't. And we have to understand this. We have to come to grips with three fundamental things about hell that we like to ignore. The first is, is that hell is no party. We all know people or have thought ourselves that you know what? I'm going to live it up. I'm going to bust hell wide open. My buddies and I, we're going to party all the time. Hell is no party. Hell is anguish and pain. The second thing is that hell has no exit. There is no secret hatch. There is no undrawn planned tunnel. There is no superhero who is coming to come get you and take you out of hell. When you are in hell, there is no escape. And there is no second chance out of hell. You don't get a do-over. Hell is real. And it's eternal. And that's why Jesus reminds us about the imperative of faith. He warns us that we must have faith. Because you see, after Abraham says no to the rich man, he comes with a second request. A second reasonable request. He says, well, if you can't help me, then send Lazarus to my brothers so that they don't end up here like me. Now, this sounds reasonable. Except for we have to stop and think again. He still wants Lazarus to be his errand boy. Think about the callousness of his heart. And he says, my brothers really need Lazarus. He has to go to them. He has to warn them. The word there for warn is the part of the word that we get martyr from. He has to testify solemnly to them. It's, it's a very full and weighty word. But you see, the problem is, his heart still shows. The only reason he wants them warned is so they can escape hell. And let me tell you here today, no matter how real we understand hell is, that is not the purpose of believing in Jesus. Jesus is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. We believe on the Lord Jesus that we might be made into the people we were always meant to be. We believe in the Lord Jesus that we might dwell eternally with Him and the Father and the Spirit. We believe in Jesus that He might be glorified for all of creation. And you see, the rich man still doesn't get that. All he cares about is getting out of hell. You see, this is what we have to understand There are not people in hell saying, if only God gave me another chance, I'd submit to Him. If only God gave me another chance, I'd glorify Him. No, they're in hell because they hate God. But that's the truth. Because your heart is what puts you in hell. And again, he gets a firm no from Abraham. Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. They have what you need. Now, there's something that we need to understand from this. That means, beloved, 
You have what you need. You have Moses. You have the prophets. And you have the apostles. You have everything you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are without excuse. You don't need skywriting in the sky. You don't need a three-headed animal that talks. You don't need a miraculous being. You have God's Word. But again, see the rich man's heart break out. What does he do? He says, no, Abraham. That's not enough. Now think about what that means. He still doesn't want to hear God. He thinks God isn't smart enough to do what he needs to do. The rich man in hell actually thinks he is smarter about salvation than God. Can you imagine the arrogance of that? He says they need someone to come back from the dead. Now there's great irony here. He doesn't want to listen to God. The irony here is Jesus is setting us up. You can already almost see where this is going, can't you? If one comes back from the dead, they will not believe him. Who's the first one to come back from the dead? Jesus. And was that enough? No. Luke lays another level in for this. Think about this. Who's talking to you now? One who is dead. Lazarus, excuse me, the rich man is dead. And he speaks. And that's not enough. And think about Lazarus. Not this Lazarus, but the other Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the Pharisees say, we misunderstood Jesus. We need to glorify God and believe in Jesus, right? No, you know what they say? We got to kill this Lazarus before anybody talks to him. Look at that. In chapter 11, he's raised. In chapter 12, they plot to kill him. Because you see, the problem is not with evidence. When someone says to you they would believe, but there's not just enough evidence, I know who they are. You could put a label on them. It's called liar. It's not about the evidence that's before them. It's about the heart. Search your own heart. Are you waiting for more proof of God's Word, whether it's with respect to Jesus or God's commands or your life. The evidence is there. The question is, is our heart ready to receive it? Because this is the whole center of this chapter. We need to look at our own attitudes towards possessions and people. Not because there is a perfect amount of stuff to have, but because it's indicative of our hearts. And we need to search our hearts and find that we are submitting to the Lord and that we believe His Word and that we trust Jesus. That's where hope is. Not just in Jesus' day, but today for you right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before You, Lord, weak, at times unwilling. And Lord, we ask that you would set our hearts upon you. Show us your word. By the power of your spirit, create faith in us that we might believe your word. This we ask 
in the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.